Hello, friends. This is Pastor Pierce Eaton, and you're listening to First and Foremost, a podcast where we give you teaching and tools to make Jesus Christ first and foremost in your life. All right, um, so today we are wrapping up our whole kind of Christmas season of sermons. Um, So we are looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So today is, in case you didn't know, it's New Year's Eve, and it's actually the seventh day of Christmas. Did you know that? Yeah, it's the seventh day of Christmas. So the 12 days of Christmas start on Christmas Day, and they go to the day of Epiphany, which is January 6th, um, and it's the day traditionally in the Western, Western tradition of the church, uh, we celebrate Epiphany as the day that the Magi uh, arrived with the gifts for Jesus. Um, now, Epiphany this year is on a Saturday, not a Sunday, so we are taking a look at um, this encounter of the Magi or the wise men or the kings. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, uh, we're going to look at that today. So you guys excited to do that? Cool. I want to invite you to stand, and we have a long passage. I'll read it out, out loud, but you can, uh, you can follow along in your Bible, or we will have words on the screen as well. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, the Greek word there is magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their, on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Lord, um, as we just read your word, we just ask that you help us to um, see what you're speaking to us through your word today. May we be people who are conformed to your word, changed by your word. May we leave here as people who carry the hope of salvation with us into a world that desperately needs it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat. Before we jump into points this morning, I want to talk about some 
maybe common misconceptions, some myths about the, the whole magi and kings and, and wise men thing. And so I have the most famous painting of the magi, if you guys want to throw that on the screen. So this is called Adoration of the Magi, and it is by uh, an Italian man named, last name Fabriano, and um, it is a beautiful work of art. Um, it, was, it was painted in the 1400s, and you can see there's a lot of people there, and there are some things that Fabriano gets right about this, and there are some things that maybe were common misconceptions that we still have today. Um, you can see the, the wise men have... Um, halos around their head, and they have crowns on. They also have a, a large group of people that are following behind them. And, um, and then you can see, you know, Mary and Jesus w- in front of a house. So um, you could take down the image. So there are a few things that you could see in that, and you might think that are misconceptions. First of all, um, were, they, were they magi? Were they wise men? Were they kings? We just saying we three kings. But actually, they weren't kings. They might have been some kind of representative of a king, but the passage says they were magi. And, and historians uh, generally agree that magi were, uh, were like pagan religious leaders or priests that, uh, that they worshiped some other a false deity, and that's they they came and and uh, they came to present gifts to Jesus, and they they weren't kings, even though they could have brought a gift from a king. They weren't kings themselves; they were more or less priests. And one of the things about these uh, pagan priests is a, a huge part of of pagan theology in in that time was the studying of the stars. We actually see a resurgence of this in kind of this new age uh, astrology thing that we see in our society today is this idea of the studying the stars, that the stars have secrets that, that kind of reveal something about our lives. And, um, and we can see this was something that the Magi did. They studied the stars, which is why they recognized this star movement or new star or whatever it might have been, which led them to Jesus. But they weren't kings, although the song says it. It's a good song. I like that song. I'm not saying anything bad about the song, but, uh, but they were Magi. They were some kind of pagan Gentile priests, which there's more to go on that um, I'll talk about in a second. Now, uh, how many were there? We just say we three kings. Were there three? We have no clue. So uh, the word in Greek for magi is in the plural. So we know there's at least two, but we don't know how many. We, we often would think that there were three because there's three gifts, but that doesn't mean there were three. So in Eastern Orthodox tradition, so Eastern Orthodox Christians for a long time have believed that there were actually 12 magi to go with the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples. I believe that there were 12 magi. Um, but regardless, there was more than one, and likely they would have been accompanied, as we saw in the painting, with a, a large caravan of people. Um, they would have been accompanied by. So this is why um, very quickly uh, Herod takes notice of these people arriving because it wasn't like, Three people just show up in the city. It's a, a giant caravan of people. Another thing is, uh, where did they meet Jesus? Was it at the manger? That's what we see in the cartoons when we watch the Christmas story, right? 
So we see in our passage that the Magi arrive to Jesus and Mary and Joseph in a house. So uh, we, we don't know exactly when the Magi arrive, um, but it is likely that it was probably months later. Uh, we, don't, we don't really truly know. But we know that later, Herod wants to kill every boy that was born in Bethlehem that's two years old and younger. So that kind of gives us an idea of maybe the time frame of how old Jesus might have been. Maybe uh, as old as two, but, uh, but definitely could be younger as well. But it, it likely wasn't the day that he was born. Um, so we see that we can, we pick up, you know, some different misconceptions that, that, that fill in the gaps of what we read. And sometimes we end up reading things into the story that completely contradict what the passage actually says. This morning, I want to invite you to look afresh with me at this story and see something that maybe you haven't seen before. And we're going to look at the gifts and we're going to look at the response of the Magi and the response of the chief priests and the scribes. And this has great significance. And I think this ultimately is what God is wanting to show us in his word by telling us this story. And so I have uh, two points for you this morning. And the, the first point is an encouragement to you to seek Christ, not religion. Seek Christ, not religion. Now, have you ever been searching for something and you search and you search and you search and maybe you find that thing and it turns out that wasn't actually the thing that you were needing? It wasn't what you were searching for? Maybe you're having a difficult time thinking of something like that, but I can tell you one and all of us will recognize it. I was asking Karen last night of an example and I couldn't think of one and then she brought this up and I'm like, of course. And that is this. Have you ever been hungry? And you go to eat something, you think, man, I'm just wanting something a little sweet. So you go, you grab something out of the fridge or whatever, you get some ice cream, you start to eat it, and you're like, mm, that's not hitting the spot. Maybe it's something salty that I need. So you go and you get something salty and you start eating it, and you're like, well, that's not hitting the spot either, but I'm hungry. That's weird. And then after eating something salty, you think, well, let me take a drink of water. And you take a drink of water, and then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I was thirsty, and I had no clue. Has this ever happened to you? So if, it has, if you think it hasn't happened to you, it's because you're not aware of your body. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. There is a clinical trial whose results were published in the journal Physiology and Behavior in the year 2008. And the study showed... Uh, that they did that at any time during the study, 37% of participants who believed they were hungry were actually mistaking their thirst for hunger. Meaning that 37% of participants in the study at any given time, it, it made its way across everyone who was a part of the study, but 37% at any given time would be thinking they're hungry when they were actually thirsty. And they would go and they would seek out food and it wouldn't satisfy. And they would seek out something else with food and else and else and else and else until eventually they realized, I've just been thirsty this entire time. The brain has a difficult time differentiating between hunger and thirst sometimes. We can very easily get those, those wires crossed. And because of that, we can mistake those things. So I, I notice uh, it happens in me sometimes. I'm sure it happens in you. I know it happens in you because the study shows that it happens in all of us. 
Well, I want to point out something to you that you might not have noticed about the passage. So we see here that there are pagan Gentile magi who see a star in the sky, and that makes them recognize that the, the Christ of the Jews has come, that the king is born. And so they go, they go, and they, they go to pay their respects to this king. And they show up, and they go to Jerusalem, where the king, naturally, they would think he would be. And they show up, and they, and they interact with Herod, and they realize that, well, this, the king hasn't been born here. And so they, they summon the chief priests and the scribes. These are the most religious people that there were. The most religious. These are the people that quite literally had the Bible memorized. They, they, they knew books, not just books, but some of them, most of the Old Testament scriptures memorized by heart. They spent their life studying it and teaching it and scribing it. And they summon these people. These are the people to ask. These are the scholars. These are the smart people. They know it all. They devoted their life to this cause. And they come and the wise men and Herod ask them where the Christ, where this Messiah is to be born. And they know. They tell them, oh, well, we know that Scripture foretells us that he will be born in Bethlehem. And the wise men say, well, we've seen a sign indicating that the, the Christ has been born. And the most religious people, the ones who you think would, would drop everything they have and seek after the Christ, respond with apathy. Not only did they know that Jesus, or that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem, but they also knew that it was going to happen soon. So if you're familiar with your Bible, the last book of the Bible is, or the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And at the end of Malachi, that's the last book that's given to God's people before Jesus comes. And at the end of Malachi, we see that God's last great prediction of what, what he's going to do, the next thing he's going to do is bring the day of the Lord. The very end of Malachi states that he's going to send a prophet in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the day of the Lord. That's the next thing that God's going to do. And we have a, a period of silence that there's around 400 years from when Malachi's written before we have Jesus' birth. And God's people are just waiting during that time. They know that the next thing that's going to happen is the Messiah is going to come. And when the Magi come, they say, we've seen a sign. And they say, we know where he's supposed to be. They don't care enough to go. But it's the pagan Gentiles who worship a false god. They're the ones who go. This week, uh, or these last two weeks after kind of just looking over this passage and thinking it through, I've been wondering why. Why would these people, why would the chief priests and the scribes be so apathetic? And the only reason I can think, and, it, and it, it goes along with what we see throughout the rest of the Gospels, is something that we see in the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, that there's a sense in their heart that they are, they're more desiring to play their religious games than they are to encounter the God of that religion. That, that they're, they're more interested in, in playing church, 
in, in going about their, their traditions and, and doing all the things that they think God would want them to do. And they've got scriptural evidence for it. Oh, I'm supposed to do all these things. I mean, this is what God's word says. I'm doing this. But then when God comes in their midst, they don't care. They're apathetic. They're more interested in continuing their religious junk than they are of encountering God. As I've been thinking about that idea this week, I've, I've just been thinking, I hope that that's not me. I hope it's not you. I hope that we are not the religious people who are getting okay with going through the motions. We're okay with, with showing up with an empty heart. We're okay with not encountering God through his word. We're okay with praying when it's convenient or when we need something. That, that we're okay with doing the, the outside facade of religion. And we're not actually interested in the relationship. Because that's the thing about Christianity. It's utterly different than any other world religion. So the idea of religion, when, when I'm using this term in religion, is what I'm talking about is the, all of the things that we're told we need to do, the, the rules, the, the things that we, we're told we have to do in order to appease God. So that's world religions. That's, that's what they're all about. So if you look at Islam or you look at Hinduism or if you look at even Buddhism, it's all about uh, living your life in a certain way so that you appease God or the universe or the gods or whatever. You, you, you have a rule book and you just live your life by these rules. And if you live your life by these rules, then you'll be okay. That's kind of what, what religions around the world give us. And yet Christianity is not a bunch of rules. One of the a pet peeve of mine is that we'll talk about the Bible and people talk, call it like our rule book. Um, or people, and if you do this, there's nothing, it's okay, but uh, they'll talk about Bible as an acronym, basic instructions before leaving earth. Um, I, I hate that phrase. Um, <laughs> because, uh, because the Bible is not just instructions for you as if, uh, Christianity is just some kind of religion that's like, okay, if, here's your long list of things to do. If you check this box and you check this box and you check this box, if you do these things, then you'll be in God's favor. Christianity is not that way at all. Christianity is not a religion in that sense. Christianity is a relationship. And I, I know you've heard this term before. It's not, it's not religion, it's relationship, but it's true. It really is is true. And, and I hope we realize this. R religion, doing a bunch of acts in order to gain God's favor, religion has no power to change your heart. Religion has no power to mend the brokenhearted. Religion has no power to overcome sin and death. In fact, the Bible talks a lot about that. New Testament talks a lot about how the law never gave life. 
the religious aspect of Judaism never gave life. Instead, it was only ever God who would give life. So religion couldn't do any of those things. The only way that we could receive uh, mending, we could receive wholeness, we could receive peace, the only way we could receive uh, freedom from sin, the only way we could receive eternal life wasn't through rules, but was through relationship, through a person, through Jesus. So as we look at 2024, I just want to encourage you guys with uh, one one thing, or I want to ask you on one thing. I want to ask that you seek God in 2024 afresh. That you seek God and not the other things. So often we can get mistaken, just like we can get our hunger and our thirst mixed up. We can get mistaken with the thing that we need is the, the rules and the structure and the church and all of that. And those are, those are not bad things. And I, I hope you realize God has put those things around us for a good purpose. But if we seek those things apart from seeking God, then these things, the rules and the structure and the church will be empty. Seek God first. It's been our covenant verse. Seek him first. And all these other things will be added. So I want to encourage you, seek the Lord this year through his word. Seek him through prayer. Know him and encounter him through prayer. Serve him in the church. And ultimately just seek him with all your heart. Uh, One easy way we can do this, or begin to do this, is through reading God's word. There is in, in intimacy with God, there is no substitute for engaging God's word. None. And I know some of you don't like to read, but I'm just telling you, there's, there's no substitute for Bible engagement in intake. So I, I just want to encourage you... Get into God's Word in 2024. I know for some of us, having a Bible reading plan is, uh, we've, we've done it before in the past. We've set up some kind of Bible reading plan and then we failed. We got like three weeks in and we were already like 15 chapters behind. You're like, how did that happen? Am I the only one? No, okay. We've all done it, right? And so you... you uh, you have this, this big plan where you're going to read like four chapters a day and uh, one, one hard week hits you and before long you're so many chapters behind and you think, well, never mind. So I want to encourage you if, you, if you don't have a regular practice, a rhythm and discipline of Bible intake, this year is a great year to begin that. And I want to encourage you if you don't normally have that Bible intake rhythm, then don't start huge. You know, don't say, like, I'm going to read the whole Bible in a month. Like, that's, there's 1,189 chapters of the Bible. It's a lot. Um, but 260 of them are in the New Testament. And something I would encourage you is read one chapter a day of the New Testament. In fact, if you do one chapter a day Monday through Friday, or just five days a week, you'll read the whole New Testament in one year. So maybe start there. And if you realize you have more bandwidth and you can add more, then start adding more. But there are a lot of different Bible reading plans. 
Um, I'm going to send you guys an email uh, later today that will give you uh, some links to some Bible reading plans. You can choose the one that's right for you. But regardless, engage in God's word. Um, Wrestle with God's word. Know him through his word. May we seek Christ first, not the religion that comes with him. If we seek him first, all the other stuff will be added. Point two this morning, we're gonna look at the gifts. Jesus is king of all, God of all, and sacrifice for all. If you look at verses 10 and 11 with me, it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. How did they worship him? Well, it says, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So these pagan magi worship the Christ by giving gifts, their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We just sang about them. You know them. So these gifts um, symbolically declare and foretell, foreshadow Christ's life. Now, the Magi didn't know that at the time. So one of the cool things about this whole story of how God's working and and bringing the Magi is you can see the sovereignty of God across all things. He aligns to the stars. He sends even pagans who don't believe in him to to send to worship the Christ. And they bring gifts, gifts they didn't know were significant. They're just bringing gifts from their land. But they show up with these gifts and it turns out they have great significance in Judaism, and we can see that in Scripture. And so the, the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, have great significance in symbolism. Gold is, uh, in the Old Testament was used to symbolize um, or to indicate holiness and royalty. So holiness and royalty. So we can see gold is uh, declaring that a king is born. Jesus is king of all. So many items in the temple were gold. So if you go back and you read the Old Testament about the tabernacle and the construction of the temple, you'll see that many things were gold. And uh, this gold was uh, to, to indicate the holiness, the set-apartness of the different things in the tabernacle or temple. And the other thing that we see is that the high priest would wear a gold diadem, a crown, on his head when he would enter the temple. So we see a holiness aspect to gold. But then we also see a kingship, a royalty aspect. So the first king in the Old Testament that we see is mentioned of wearing a gold crown is King David. And King David wears a, a gold crown. And, and theologians speculate that the reason why he's the first one and not Saul to wear a gold crown is because um, he is seen as taking this throne... And it's, that's holy and royal, that, that God sets him on the throne, not the people, and that it's an indication of this idea of the holiness and the royalty. And so we see that gold is given from the Magi to Jesus, not realizing the, the symbolism that it indicates within Judaism, that Jesus is both holy and royal. He is the good king that God was sending. We also see frankincense. Uh, Frankincense in the Old Testament was used for worship in the temple. You can tell by the name, frankincense. 
right? That it's, it's an incense, right? So in Exodus 30, we see that uh, God gives a description of the incense that was to be burned in the temple for worship. And frankincense was the primary ingredient for that incense. So whenever people entered into the temple, the, the first thing they would smell was the incense of frankincense being burned. It was accompanied, it would be burned throughout the temple and it would accompany different burnt offerings that they would make in the temple, sacrifices they would make. And this um, frankincense would have been associated with acceptable worship. That if you're going to worship God, because in the Old Testament, they went to the tabernacle or the temple. That's where you worship God. And so if you were going to worship God, then it was accompanied by this, this smell, this sweet, fragrant aroma that was pleasing to God. So Jesus is king of all, but he is God of all because we see that when, they, when the magi come to bring the gift to Jesus... Jesus is, they don't realize this, Jesus is God in the flesh. So worship of him is naturally accompanied by the same incense as the worship of God in the temple. And then the third one we see is myrrh, uh, which is a conundrum to spell if you don't have spell check, right? M-Y-R-R-H. Um, so myrrh is also fragrant. It's a fragrant oil or resin from the myrrh tree. And um, in the Old Testament, myrrh, it was the primary ingredient in anointing oil. Did you know that? So in Exodus chapter 30, later, later on after the, the incense description, we see anointing oil described and the primary ingredient is myrrh. And the oil was used to anoint everything in the temple that was used for worship and sacrifice. Um, it was also used to anoint the high priest whenever he would enter into the temple. Um, this same oil was used by Samuel to anoint King David whenever he encounters and, and is anointed as the next king of Israel. So we see uh, this idea of this anointing for worship and sacrifice to be set apart. It is used, myrrh is used for that purpose, but we also see myrrh used in embalming for death. So if you know the story of Jesus' death, he dies on the cross, and, um, and Joseph of Arimathea is the one who he asks Pilate for Jesus' body so that he can put him in a tomb, and he takes the body, and in John chapter 19, verse 39, we see Nicodemus also be a part of that, and it says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So we see myrrh is this thing that's associated with death. And what's really cool in Christian tradition, for, for quite literally 2,000 years, Christians have seen myrrh as a symbol indicating Christ's atoning sacrifice, his death. That, that myrrh symbolizes the anointing of Jesus, of, of Jesus as our sacrifice, and that he goes to die for us on the cross. And that's beautiful, is it not? 
that we see these, these three things that God brings through the Magi. They had no clue how significant it was. But it declares that Jesus is king of all, that he's God of all, and that he is sacrifice for all. So this morning, we are going to remember that sacrifice in the way that Jesus told us to do it. And that is by taking communion. And so I want you to get your cup out. If you're a guest with us, you're welcome to participate in this with us as long as you're a professing follower of Christ, that he's your Lord and Savior. We invite you to participate in this with us. Um, we take communion, or the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it. We take communion to remember what Christ has done for us upon the cross, that he is our atoning sacrifice. Now, those are words that we might not be familiar with. What is atoning sacrifice? So real quickly, the Bible quickly tells us, and I think you can see it in your life, that everyone is sinful, that you are, that I am, everyone we've ever encountered is sinful. And because of our sin and rebellion, that's ultimately what sin is, rebellion against God, because of that, we, we justly deserve punishment for that rebellion against our Creator. If God was just to forgive us and not do anything, then He would not be just. So God needed to in order to be loving and just, he needed to send some kind of payment for us so that, that he could be just in exacting the judgment for our sins upon us or something or someone. But the thing is, our, our sin is so great, and, and it's sin against the perfect God of the universe, the one who made it all. So that would require a perfect payment, one that you and I are not capable of. So God made a way by taking on flesh himself. The eternal God of creation entered into creation. He lived the life that you and I could not live. He was sinless. And then he willingly went to the cross to die the death that you and I deserve for our sins. But since he was sinless, he did not deserve that death. And he took your your sin and your shame and the wrath that it deserves upon himself and died for it on the cross. And it's, it's through his sacrifice, by his blood being shed, by his body being broken, that we can have life because he paid the penalty for us. So that's what we remember today. Before we take communion, uh, we're gonna pray and I want to invite you, this is a time of uh, reflection and repentance. That before we take the bread and the cup, although it's like two little chiclets or whatever is in there and some little, little bit of juice. Um, although it may not seem significant, it's deeply symbolic, just as the gifts were. And I just want you to take a moment to think about your own brokenness. Reflect on your own brokenness and your sin and your need for a Savior. And you pray and thank God, repent, turn from those things and thank God for the sacrifice of Jesus.
Let's take a moment to do that. Lord, we come to you as broken people. We don't deserve salvation. We're rebellious. Even, even when we seek you, we still constantly rebel against you. Something in us that just always seeks uh, self-seeking rather than seeking you. We turn the good things you've given us into religious acts where we seek the religion more than we seek you. Lord, we, we get our wires crossed in so many ways. We are broken. And yet, while we were still sinners, or we're still broken, you sent Jesus to do what we could not do so that we might have life. Lord, thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. Help us to see the gravity of our own sin so that we might see the sweetness of the salvation we receive through Christ. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11 23 through 25. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I want to invite you to open the bread. Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you don't open your cup. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Taking communion is an act of worship. Um, but there are other ways that we continue and worship God. And so one of the ways we're going to do that is by um, singing together. So we're going to respond 
by beholding the sacrifice of Christ by singing a song about that. I want to invite you, if you need uh, someone to pray with, we're going to have some Bible study leaders around the room, and they would love to pray with you if you have any prayer needs during this song. But let's respond in worship. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing together. Father, you are good, and we, uh, we just thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. We thank you for the, the truth that he's king of all, God of all, and sacrifice for all. Help us to cherish that today. And Lord, as we sing this song, beholding who you are, Lord, I ask that uh, you inhabit the praises of your people, that we leave here today as people who seek you with our whole heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.